All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis 18 for our continuing study through the book of Genesis. Before we begin, I have a very important announcement. All right? Today is September the 24th. September the 24th. And I have a very important announcement of something uh, very important that happened yesterday. Okay? It has nothing to do with college football. You have walked into a church that doesn't believe in talking about college football on Sundays. So it's not that. Okay? It's a different kind of important. Okay? It has been reported to us by some that September the 23rd, 2014, was the return of Jesus Christ. And so I have bad news and good news for you this morning. Okay, and we'll do the bad news first. Every single one of you in this room missed it. Okay, and I'm not sure what that says about our church, that we don't even have one church member that was raptured. Every single one of us have been left behind. Okay? Alright. That's the pretend bad news. Okay? The only real bad news, besides the fact that false prophecies were propagated um, about the return of Christ again, again, uh, this has happened perpetually throughout church history. Uh, For some reason, you know, Jesus has told his church and his disciples that we do not know the day and that we do not know the hour of Jesus's return. But for some reason, uh, that just didn't land it. Things are things are cross wired and cross threaded all throughout church history. There have been prophecies made about the return of Christ. And just a reminder for us this morning. Um, that Jesus, as, as his church and as disciples, he has not called us to date set. We are supposed to be living in perpetual readiness for the Lord Jesus Christ to rip the sky wide open and to return at any moment. So the only bad news about yesterday is that we have to wait just a little bit longer to see the face of Jesus Christ. And just a little bit longer, the promise from God is that we will see him. And that we will be made like him. But there is some good news uh, for us this morning. And I want to say this. Um, what, what is the delay in the, in the return of Christ? The fact that he didn't come yesterday. How is that good news for us today? And I'm submitting to you that it is very good news that Christ has delayed And I want to address anyone in this room, any visitors that have made their way in here, that the delay of Jesus Christ is kindness to us. It is his kindness to us. The Bible tells us that he does not desire for any to perish. Jesus desires for all to come to repentance, to a saving knowledge of God. And that's really good news for us this morning. And it's really good news for us in a land of cultural Christianity that there is still time for you to get saved. There is still time for you to repent. There is still time for you to come to know Jesus Christ in a real and a saving way. And I want to encourage you this morning that can even happen as we give attention to God's word Even today. So let's pray together before we dive in this morning to Genesis 18. Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. And we ask for mercy today, Lord, from heaven. God, we ask for power. Lord, we ask for you to make yourself known to your people again, Lord. God, again we come and we ask, Lord, for you to feed us, God, with Your nourishment, Lord, your bread from heaven, God, a portion from you that you would give it to us today, Lord, give us what we need, God, all around this room, 
Give nourishment to your people and exalt the work of Jesus Christ in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. And we're going to read our text together beginning in verse 16. I'm going to read this all the way to the end of chapter 18. So we've got a, quite a bit. Let's settle in and let's listen to the word of God. This is God's word to Grace Community Church today. It says this. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said. If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, Lord, be not angry with me and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. Abraham returned to his place. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. And we want to listen in. We want to lean in and listen and hear what God would have us to hear from this text. And what we did when we read that passage of scripture, we leaned in so basically the prelude of, judge, of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. We got the, the inside track into the mind of God, into the intercession of Abraham, into some, th some hidden things that were taking place prior to God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And most importantly, we were made aware in that passage of the criteria that if it was in place, God would relent this 
judgment. And we're going to lean into that this morning. I want us to cover this passage, move through this passage by asking and answering three questions. And here they are if you want to jot them down. First, why is God planning to judge Sodom? Why is he going to judge them? Second question, why does God tell Abraham about this judgment? Why is he bringing Abraham into his counsel? And the third question is this. We'll finish on this this morning. How does Abraham respond to God's plan to judge Sodom? So let's begin through moving through these questions. We're going to jump around in the text. And this is the most helpful way that I feel like it would be to move through this text so you can see what's happening here. So let's start with this first question. Okay, This is the clearest of the three. Why is God about to judge Sodom, this wicked city? And our text gives us two answers to that question in verse 20. And the first is this. God's word tells us that their sin is very grave. Okay. Now, it's possible to just flatline sin. And what I mean by flatlining sin, how that sounds is, oh, we're all sinners. And if that's the only thing you know about sin, then you don't even have a grid for things like this in God's word. Sin that is very grave. Sin that had gotten to the point to where it could no longer be tolerated. Very grave sin. And then the other side of that in verse 20, it tells us that there was an outcry lifted up against the sin of Sodom. There was an outcry that made its way to God. And so the, the stage is set in, in verse 20 that the sin that is in Sodom is so severe that it can no longer be endured. And I think this is really helpful for us because typically when we think about really severe sin, we think in categories like this murder or sexual sin, rightly so. Okay. Those are severe sins, okay? But there's something going on in this city that God hates, that God counts as severe. That's not less. It's not less than murder, and it's not less than sexual sin, but their sin is actually quite broader than sexual sin. And we see this as the prophet Ezekiel comments back onto the sin of Sodom and God's judgment on Sodom. So let me read you this. Ezekiel chapter 16 Listen to verse 49. He says this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. And she did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, and they did an abomination before me, so I removed them. So I want us to see that this severe sin, very grave sin, it's not less than sexual sin, but it's definitely broader. And so we don't we don't typically think about sins like not aiding the poor and the needy in the way that we think about sin. We don't slide that in the severe category that God does in Genesis 18. And that's because God thinks about sin differently than we do. That's one of many ways how that principle plays out. And so there is wickedness in this city. Broad scale wickedness. They're not loving their neighbor. They're not aiding the poor and needy. And in addition to that, Ezekiel says they do an abomination before God. Almost certainly that is a reference to homosexual sin being practiced in the city of Sodom. And so it is sin saturated. This city is, is pictured as sin saturated. Sin so severe that it can no longer be tolerated. And then we have this outcry being lifted up against this city. So if you remember earlier in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, there was a murder. The third human being on planet earth murdered his brother. And when that happened, when Cain killed Abel and he 
spilt his righteous blood on the ground. God comes to Cain and what does he say? He says, Abel's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is a vivid picture. Not only is God aware of all sin, but all sin that has not been punished is crying out for vengeance to God, the just judge of all the earth. And so there's this outcry being lifted up against this wicked city that comes. It's a judicial complaint and it comes before the courtroom of God. And we see God coming down into this city and he has planned to judge Sodom. This sin will no longer be tolerated. So the stage is set for a judgment in Genesis 18. Now, we have to explode some of the bad ways that we think about judges and crimes and penalties when we come into um, things about God. Because God is the righteous judge and he is like a judge in some ways, but he's not like a judge in other ways. He's a perfect judge. He is a righteous judge. So I want, to, I want to remind us of that this morning, that, that for many different reasons, there are judicial complaints that come to earthly judges, and for different reasons and for different motives, they ignore them, okay? Maybe they don't have perfect knowledge to know what to do with them, but earthly judges are not perfect in the way that they deal with judicial complaints, Okay? They can get it wrong or they can be wicked men and they can ignore crime and ignore sin. That never plays out with God, the judge of all the earth. Not, it's not like 99 times out of 100 he gets it right. He never ignores sin. Never, never. He never ignores unpunished sin. He never ignores a judicial complaint. Somebody breaks his holy law. Now already, we're tiptoeing into um, a, a, the, the, the false god of American culture. And what I mean by this is we're sitting in the middle of a passage of Scripture. This book that we say is authoritative. And a God is held forward in Genesis 18 that judges sin. And what I mean by that is this is directly contradicting that false God of American culture that takes some things out of the Bible that make you feel good that you like and ignores other things in the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. We live in a culture largely okay, that has no problem with a God who is love, love, love. Okay. But in Genesis 18, we meet a God who is just, just, just. Okay? God does love sinners, but that is not the only thing that the Bible says about God. And here we're getting this picture of the one true God and what He is like. He is just, 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 and He has planned a judgment against sin. He is about to judge Sin and his justice demands that he respond. You think about that. Think about if something is done wrong to your child and someone in power and authority has legal power and legal authority to, to remedy that wrong. And you bring that judicial complaint to them and they ignore you. Is that a righteous man? Is that a morally good thing to do? If you have power to remedy a wrong and not to do it? Absolutely not. That's an unrighteous judge. But God's righteousness demands that he has to respond to human sin. He can actually do something about it. He's not powerless against it. He has to respond to human sin. And I want to say something this morning about God that's provocative. But I want to make you think about this because of the culture that you live in, that from the moment we come out of the womb, we are told God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. That is not 
untrue, but it's a half-truth if you don't get the other side of what the Bible says about God. He's a righteous judge. He is not your grandfather in the sky. He is God, the righteous judge, the holy, holy, holy one. And so here's how I'd like you to think about this this morning. If, if no one has ever told you this about God, this can be a paradigm shift in the way that you think about everything. Okay? If God judges sin, if God judges sinners, if God brings judicial penalties and punishments, then this is, this is a true statement. That though God loves you, and He does, God loves himself more than God loves you. I'll say that again. Though God loves you and he does, listen closely. God loves himself more than God loves you. Another way to say this is God is not an idol worshiper. God is not an idol worshiper. He loves himself more than any other being in all the universe. The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You better take this to the bank that God does that. He loves himself with everything that he has perfectly. He is not an idol worshiper. And what this means is that God loves himself more than he loves sinners. Press into this for just a moment. If that were not true, then hell would be an empty place. But we know from Scripture that hell is a full place. Jesus says that there is a path that is broad and easy. And Jesus says that many go down this path and its end is destruction. And so hell is not this empty place that nobody's in. It's this place that many people find themselves in. How could that be true if God didn't love himself more than God loves you? This doesn't diminish that God loves you at all. It just God is not an idol worshiper. It puts us in our rightful place before God, the just judge of all the earth. He loves himself more than he loves sinners. Another way to say this is that he loves his glorious justice. He loves his glorious justice. God is gloriously just. And he loves that about himself. And if you make him decide. If you push him to the very limits. And you make him decide between punishing unrepentant sinners. Okay. Or discarding his glorious justice. God has already told us what he's going to do every single time. Okay. He will not sweep sin under the rug. He will deal with unrepentant sin. Why? Because he loves his glorious justice. He loves himself. And he will exalt himself. He will glorify himself even if that means judgment. And what that means is as we are, are made aware of God the just judge... Of all the earth that loves himself, that loves his justice. What that means for us is that the only safe place for a human sinner is to repent of their sins and receive his glorious gospel. That's it. God has told us how every other scenario ends up. And it ends up with God the just judge judging sinners for their sins. Apart from repentance, we can expect nothing but judgment from the God of the Bible. Nothing but judgment. Why? Because he loves his glorious justice. What we see in Genesis 18 is that Sodom's time had ran out. They had time to repent. And then God made a sovereign decision that they don't have time anymore. Their time was up. And God made a decision to judge them. The time for judgment has arrived in Genesis 18. And we get a picture that God gives us at the end of verse 21. We get this picture. Not only 
has God arrived with this plan to judge Sodom? He tells us that he's going to go investigate the situation for himself. He's going to go down to see if this outcry is really, is really true. Now think about that. Okay? It's not that somebody very reliable came to God and God's like, well, i got to check that out. Remember who this is. Remember who we're dealing with. Earlier in Genesis 18, he's reading the mind and the thoughts of Sarah across the room. Okay? He knows all things. He has perfect knowledge of all things. There are no surprises. He reads everything right before his eyes. Nothing is hidden from him. And so that little phrase in, in, in verse 21, that's for you. That's for us. That's a picture that God's showing us something. That I'm about to drop a judgment. But I want you to know that I'm going down to investigate this firsthand. So that you can know when this judgment falls, it is a just judgment. It is calculated. I have not responded on hearsay. I've seen it with my own eyes. I am intimately aware with rebellious Sodom and everything that they have done. It's before me. It's not hidden from me. And God is showing us this for us. He wants us to know that he has firsthand knowledge of human sin. And that means when any of God's judgment falls, that's always true. He has perfect knowledge of why he determined that that judgment would fall. And by the way, that's just a reminder. That's why we can't question his judgments. His judgments are inscrutable. He doesn't judge in any human being. It has no grounds to say, yeah, but you shouldn't have. There's no finish in that sentence. Why? Because we don't have the perspective that he does. He goes down and investigates. He has firsthand knowledge of human sin. The intricacies of it. And we don't. We are in no place to stand in judgment against the judge of all the earth. And he's showing us that in this picture in verse 21. And so God wants Abraham to know that this judgment that's about to fall on Sodom is just. But God also wants him to know that this is not this random act. Okay. When this judgment falls and this city is burning like a torch, God doesn't want Abraham sitting there thinking, oh, man, that's a random natural disaster. You know, that's that's just random, you know, crazy, craziest thing. You know, cities going up like a torch. He wants him to know that this is actually a personal judgment by God, the just judge of all the earth. In other words, he wants Abraham to know I did that. That was my work. I intervened and I dropped that judgment on that wicked city. And so with this, it brings us to our second question. Why does God bring Abraham into his plan to judge Sodom? Listen to verse 17. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So we, we have these strange words. Okay. So you have God. Two other men, and you have Abraham, and there's and God begins to talk to himself. Okay? And this would be, you know, just for analogy's sake, this is Charlie Nosco, you know, five feet away from me, saying to Victoria, Hey, should should I hide from Dustin what I'm about to say? And I can hear you, you know? And so these questions are asking questions, but they're answering them at the same time. And as God deliberates. With himself in verse 17, 18, and 19. He's actually bringing Abraham in. And he's answering this question. And so God's question is, should I bring Abraham? Uh, should, I, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And his answer is no. Okay, And we see that from the following verses. That he brings Abraham into uh, the knowledge that, of this plan of judgment. He's not going to hide his plan to judge Sodom from Abraham. He's going to bring him into it. This is God bringing Abraham. We said he was the friend of God. We talked about that last week. And this is an example of that. Of God bringing the friend of God into the secret counsel of the Lord. Sharing his counsel with Abraham. This is in and of itself. This is grace from God. 
to, to have revelation from God about anything is grace from God. Listen to Psalm 25, verse 14. It says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. John chapter 15, verse 15. Jesus says this, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So we have this principle playing out in Genesis 18 that God has this counsel, this plan that he's about to enact and he shares it. His secret counsel, he shares it with Abraham, the friend of God. And then we have some very specific reasons why. Verse 18 and 19. Very specific reasons of why Abraham is about to be told God is about to judge Sodom. Okay? And so, in a nutshell, this is, this is what verse 18 and 19 say. Okay? Abraham is the chosen, the chosen of God. God has graciously chosen Abraham. Verse 19. Verse 18 tells us why. That God would make Abraham into this great and mighty nation. And we know going forward that this is the nation of Israel, the people of God. So God has this plan. He chooses a man and he's ordained to make this man grow and multiply into a great and mighty nation. But it even goes one step further than that. That God has a plan even further than that. That through this nation, that God has a plan to bless all the nations of the earth. So God wants to pull him into this knowledge of judgment because he's chosen, because he's going to become a great nation and because God is going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. But we need more specifics. So it's still kind of hanging out there vague. okay? And the specifics come in verse 19 when we find out that that stuff is conditional. That Abraham will become a great and mighty nation. That an all nations blessing would come through um, Abraham and this nation that comes from Abraham. It's conditional. It's conditional. Listen to verse 19. It says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Listen. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So something's about to go down that Abraham is going to Abraham is going to command his children to walk with God so that God can bring about the promise. And what God's telling us in verse 19 is that that, that in order for him to bring about this all nations blessing. The descendants of Abraham need to be set apart. They need to be a holy people. They need to be distinct from all the other nations around them that they're going to bring blessing to. And so here's what we see. God's going to make Abraham aware of this judgment. I'm going to judge Sodom. And Abraham is going to make good use of that knowledge. Okay, He's not just going to scratch his head and say, well... Man, that, that scratches my curious itch, you know. He's going to make good use of it. He's going to respond to it. He's going to use it as an example um, to pass on to his children. And so there's coming a moment in chapter 19 where the man is going to stand, okay, on a hillside looking down on this city. And he is going to see smoke rise up from this city. And he's going to personally, visibly watch the smoke of their judgment rise to the heavens. And the judgment of Sodom is going to make an imprint on him. It's going to mark him. He's going to remember that for the rest of his days. When God came down and God judged the wicked. And not only is it going to mark him as a marked man... Having knowledge of God, the righteous judge, he's going to turn to his children and he's going to impart that knowledge about God, that God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. We are commanded to walk in God's ways. 
lest we become like Sodom that God destroyed and their smoke rises up to the heavens. And so this whole thing is about to be an object lesson for the people of God that if we don't repent of our sins, this is how we will end up. In fact, the rest of the Bible tells us that, that the judgment of Sodom becomes a monumental reminder that God judges the wicked. It's like a paradigm that's repeated over and over and over again. That this is a picture. Get it firm in your mind. Get this knowledge of God firm in your mind. Because He will judge the wicked just like He judged Sodom. For unrepentant sin. And so Abram, Abraham is going to turn and he's going to impart this knowledge to his offspring. And he's going to command them to walk in holiness. And not to walk in sin and wickedness like Sodom. The New Testament language is a phrase to understand this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says this. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And that's exactly what's happening here in Genesis 18. That Abraham is being made aware of a fear of God. Of a, of a right fear of God's justice and God's judgment. And he's going to use that knowledge about God to impart it to his offspring and to his children. This is a perpetual reminder for the people of God. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 6. It says this, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. If you ever wonder what the judgment of God is going to look like, Genesis 19 is about to give us a, a good picture. That there's coming a day where something like this, except exceedingly worse, is going to happen to the ungodly. And so in the coming years, after God rains down judgment on Sodom, He's going to pass this knowledge off to His offspring. God is the righteous one. God judges human sin. Therefore, walk in righteousness. Walk in holiness. So that's His long-term response when God says, I'm going to judge Sodom. But our last question to really dive into today is His immediate response. What does He immediately do when God tells Him... I'm going to judge the city. I'm going to go investigate the cries that have come up to me. I'm going to see if their sin is as great as these cries say they are. And I'm going to judge them. Verse 23. Abram's immediate response is to intercede and to plead before God. We have a paragraph of scripture that is... This bouncing back and forth dialogue between Abraham and the one true God. God, the just judge of all the earth. And that's a really important principle that still applies to the people of God today, to us. What is the appropriate response of a Christian when we are made aware of this severe side of God and God's judgment on the wicked? What's the appropriate response? What's the reflex of the soul? And it's intercession. It's intercession. It's standing in the gap. It's asking God for mercy. And that's what he does here. He stands in the presence of God and he draws near to God and he begins to plead with God. His central concern is found in verse 23. He says this, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You're about to judge that city. Are you going to sweep away the righteous in that city with the wicked? And that's what he's fearing. That's what he's anxious about. That there's going to be this indiscriminate judgment. And God's just going to kill everybody. That's his, that's his, he says, far be it from you. Far be it from you to do this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? But think about this. This is his plea. So he's praying to God. And I really, I really want you to think about this this morning. Who is Abraham praying for in this paragraph? Who's he praying for? That's not as simple of an answer as you would think it was. So let's think about this for a moment. 
As he begins to intercede, is he praying for the righteous in that city? As he begins to go to God, is he praying for the righteous in Sodom? And the answer is yes and no. Of course he's praying that, that God would spare the righteous. But that's not all he's praying because he doesn't say this. God save the righteous and kill every one of the rest of them. He doesn't say that. So yes, he's praying for the righteous, but it's more complicated than that. And then turn, turn to this question. Well, what, is he praying for the wicked? Is he praying for the wicked? It's a complicated answer. He does not specifically say, save the wicked. I want you to see that. Okay? He does not specifically say, God, save the wicked in this city. Think about this. He's not coming to God and saying, God, be lenient. Be a lenient judge. God, calm down. Don't be so angry at human sin. None of that. None of that. God, can you just let it go? Can you just sweep it under the rug? This is not his prayer. In fact, he's doing the exact opposite of asking God to be lenient with the wicked. He's coming to God and the thing that happens over and over and over again is he's saying, God, be just. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Do what is just. God is the just judge. And Abraham is coming to God and he's asking God to be just. So it's more complicated than that. It's more complicated than that. So I want us to notice very specifically that Abraham is asking God, listen closely, to spare the wicked on behalf of the righteous. He's asking for mercy, but he's asking for mercy to come in a just way, just mercy from God. And this is the only kind of mercy that God ever gives. The only kind of mercy that God ever gives. It's not just spare the city. It's spare the city on behalf of the righteous. He's asking that the sodomites would be spared on the basis of the righteousness of another. The righteousness of who? Well, Abraham knows Lot's in the city. Lot is nephew. Maybe he's asking on behalf of Lot's righteousness. But that's not all. Because he's at least convinced that there's some other righteous people inside him. And we know that by the numbers that he starts with and ends with. Starts with 50. Works his petition all the way down to 10. At least, Abraham at least believes that there's 10 righteous people in Sodom. And God was willing to meet him every step of the way. If these requirements are in place, I will spare the city. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Every single time, God is willing. But Abraham is wrong. God, the next chapter, God finds one righteous man in Sodom, Lot, and no one else. Abram thought there were more. He thought they were possibly many more. But there's one inside the city who is righteous, and that one is Lot. And we find out in Genesis chapter 19 that Lot is not able to deliver the city by his righteousness. He does not meet the criteria. He does not meet the requirements that God has laid out in this intercession, in this plea with God. He cannot deliver the city by his righteousness. He was not righteous enough. Okay? And so here's the principle that comes to us in Genesis 18. Jot this down. The righteousness of another can stop God's hand of judgment. That's, that's the truth of this intercession. God says, yes, 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 yes. I will spare the whole on behalf of a righteous few. And so that's the, that's the truth for us to see. That God says... That the righteousness of another can stop his judgment. Now, this principle comes to us, you know, really for the first time in the Bible. And as we read the Bible, this principle becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. This principle of God stopping his judgment on the basis of the righteousness of another. 
And so think about this. One of the things that becomes clear as we read through all of Scripture is that God in Genesis 18 is willing to spare Sodom for ten righteous. Ten righteous. And some of us are scratching our head and we're thinking like, man, why didn't he drop that lower? You know, why, why stop? Why stop there? Things are on a roll. You know, why, why not drop the bottom out of this petition? But as we read scripture in Genesis 18, he's willing to spare the wicked Sodom on behalf of ten righteous. But as this principle becomes clearer and clearer in God's word, we find out that God is willing to stay his hand. He is willing to stop his judgment on the basis of one who is righteous, one who is righteous. This principle becomes clearer and clearer the more revelation that God gives, the more we read in the Holy Scripture. And so this principle, we bump into it in Genesis 18. This principle that God will stop his judgment on the basis of the righteousness of another. This is where the principle is discovered. As we read the rest of the Bible, we find out that this principle is actually executed in Jesus Christ. This is a principle that climaxes and culminates in the work of Jesus Christ. So think about this. In Genesis 18, we come face to face with this fact. Okay? That we need a neighbor who is more righteous than Lot. Sodom had a righteous neighbor in Lot. He was a righteous man. But he wasn't righteous enough to deliver that city. And so we need a neighbor who is more righteous than he. And this is all culminating in the work of Jesus Christ for sinners through his glorious gospel. The presence of righteous Lot did not save the city of Sodom. Because only the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is able to stop the judgment of God. Lot was not righteous enough. He was derivative. derivative, He he had imputed righteousness. Jesus has righteousness radiating off of his being. He is perfectly righteous. He is the righteous one. Lot's righteousness was given to him as a gift. Jesus' righteousness is part of who he is. He can't be anything different. And so this is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what we need to stop the judgment of God on human sin. Listen to how this is described. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so one of the things that we take away as Christians, as followers of Christ, as we read about the judgment of God that falls on Sodom, the thing that one of the things that we take away is that we have no chance of escaping this judgment. Apart from the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Apart from the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need a neighbor more righteous than Lot. Okay? And not only that, we need an intercessor that can do more than Abraham did. We need an intercessor that's more capable than Abraham. Abraham's prayer did not deliver the city. Lot's righteousness did not deliver the city. Now, is it good to have men and women like Abraham praying for you? Godly men and women asking God to have mercy on you? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. But we need more than that. We need more than that. We need more than somebody pleading on our behalf. For God to stay his hand. Because that mercy is only going to come. As the justice of God is satisfied. And so we need somebody to do for us. What Abraham was not able to do for Sodom. I want you to think about this. Abraham could pray for Sodom. He could ask God to stay his hand. But only Jesus can actually go down into Sodom. 
and take their punishment in their place. Only Jesus can become the substitute, the wrath bearer, the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. We need a mediator more capable than Abraham. And the only one who can do what needs to be done is Jesus. He alone can bear the curse that is due to us because of our sin. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So I want you to think about this. We bump into these principles in Genesis chapter 18. That God is willing to deliver that city on the basis of the righteousness of another. But there's nobody found. Nobody is found. And we can pick up that theme in God's word that God searches for a man. The eyes of the Lord searching to and fro. That God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek for God. And his conclusion is this. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that's the position that we are in apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. God is willing, but nobody can meet the requirements until the righteous one arrives. Until the righteous one arrives. Just a moment ago, all across this room, we had a quiet moment where we bowed the knee and we had these symbols in our hand to drive us to the remembrance of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And part of what we're in a battle to do over and over and over is to see the wickedness of our sin on the one hand and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ on the other hand, and we're in a battle to see that every single day, a battle to see those things rightly. And this is a helpful reminder for us in Genesis 18. So I want you to think about what Jesus has done for you. Okay? I want you to think about what Jesus has done for you. The perfectly righteous one, the one who has perfect righteousness, Came to live in this unrighteous world. And that transition was, was like perfect purity. That he left glory with the Father. And he humiliated himself when he came to planet earth. To dwell in the midst of our filth. He became the eternal son of God. Taking on flesh. And he came to this filthy place, this place of sin, this place of rebellion. And you could even say it this way, that the most righteous man who ever lived came, volunteered to live in this filthy Sodom-like world among filthy Sodom-like people like us, like you and like me. And that's who he is and that's who we are in, in, in contrast to him. We're the filthy ones. And we don't even know it. It's like these filthy animals and they're standing right in front of you. And they have no idea that they're repulsive to you. This is who we are and this is who He is. He comes from the high and holy place. Voluntarily takes on human flesh and humiliates Himself to dwell in this sin-soaked world around sin-soaked people like you. And like me. And not only that, to be treated as though he were one of them, even the most wicked of them, to be punished like by Sodom like people, like you and like me. This is what Christ has done for you. He didn't stay back and intercede from a distance. He goes into the wicked city to live among the wicked ones and listen, to take their punishment in their place. This is the glorious gospel that we are in a daily battle to remember that gap of the Holy One and the Glorious One coming for the filthy ones, the criminals that do not deserve Him. He dwelt among us 
personally witnessed our wickedness. He verified it with his own eyes. He had firsthand perfect knowledge of our sin, but he did not give us what we deserved. In fact, he took it in our place. Think about that. The most righteous man that ever lived volunteered to be treated like a sodomite because of his great love for sinners like you and like me. And we need this. We need this perfect work of Jesus Christ. We have no chance of being right with God without it. This is the only thing that can stop the hand of God's judgment. That God would stay His hand of judgment. Only Jesus fulfills those requirements. He is the righteous one. There is none like Him. And my prayer today is that as we believe, as we leave this place, that we would really believe that about ourselves. That we were the filthy ones. Jesus didn't come for worthy ones. Jesus didn't come for some people who just needed a little bit more help to get them over the line. We were rebellious. We were dead in sin. We hated God. We were His enemies. And He comes for us anyway. And we need to believe that every single day about ourselves. That God demonstrated His love for me while I was a sinner. While I was an enemy. While I was far away from God. He was burned up in judgment instead of me. That's the picture of the gospel. Abram watched the judgment of God. The smoke of God's judgment reach to the sky. And Jesus voluntarily took God's wrath, God's judgment. And he was burned up instead of us. This is the great love of God in Jesus Christ for sinners. And I've reminded you of that today. And I want to remind you of one more thing. This text shows us both. It shows us the love of God and the severity of God. The love of God and the mercy of God to Abraham. And the severity of God and the justice of God to Sodom. One was saved. One was judged. And both of these are true about God. One of the things that I want to remind us of as we close is that there was a moment, okay? And nobody in this room knows when this moment happens. This is God's prerogative. But there was a moment where Sodom reached the point of no return. And there was no longer any chance for them to repent. God had ordained a judgment to destroy the entire city. Okay? So I'll remind you of that. God discriminates. We think about that as a bad thing, and it is in an earthly sense. God discriminates. He draws a line between the righteous and the wicked, His people and those who are not His people. And He judged those who were not His people, the unrepentant ones. And they had time, their entire life, they had time to repent until they didn't have time anymore. And they didn't know it was coming. Nobody knew that. Just like everybody setting dates about the return of Christ, every single one of them were wrong. Every single one of them. Nobody knew when the judgment was going to fall. And that day was just like any other day. And they had time to repent until they didn't have time to repent anymore. And that same principle is true for every one of us in the room today. That Jesus is merciful. He's not willing that any perish. He, want, he desires for all to have a saving knowledge. To come to a knowledge of Him. But there is a time, even in your life, where there's no more mercy. And there's no more patience for your sin. And you have time to repent until you don't have time anymore. And nobody in this room knows when that moment is. And so there's some urgency that we're supposed to be bringing into this desire to be right with the just judge of all the earth. There's a tremendous urgency. And our prayer is that God would open our eyes 
more and more for our need for Jesus Christ. We need one who can do for us what Lot can't do, what Abraham can't do, what your mama and daddy can't do, what pastors of your church can't do. We need what only Jesus can do for us. And we need our eyes open to the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to help us to think rightly about our sin. And God, we ask you to help us to think rightly about you, Lord. God, we ask you to come against the false versions that we see of you all around us. God, many, in many different ways. God, reveal yourself to us in truth. And use your word in our life today. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.